our structure of our magazine also has a lot like how we run with our editors and our freelancers and stuff has a lot to do with skills I learned in journalism and people in the journalism world who I had met who I called up panicked being like hey man I guess I'm running a publication over here and there's a million people reading it I don't know what I'm doing can you help me out I used to tell reporters that when they write a lead they should write it like a joke write the setup create an expectation and use the punchline to subvert it I'm Michael O'Connell this is It's All Journalism Matt Sancom is the co-creator with Bill Conway of the music and satire website, The Hard Times. Matt also created the software OutVoice to help fix how freelancers get paid. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Great. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Okay, this is great. I'm glad we're actually here at the National Press Club. You happen to be in town because you're promoting a book. Let's talk about that first. Tell me about the book. Yeah. The book is called The Hard Times, The First 40 Years. And it's as if our music satire website had existed in 1976 and has been reporting on punk and hardcore all throughout its rise. And so we've got articles from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. So the first half of the book is all new original content. And the back half is kind of like the greatest hits from our website so far. We tried to make the book something where you put it down on a coffee table. And if you open it up to any page, you should get a laugh. But if you want to read it front cover to back cover, there's also a narrative in there. So we put a little bit too much work into it. I went and looked at the book in the humor section of Barnes & Noble. Oh, there's a lot of books in there where it's just like a pure grift. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, 10 Trump tweets, but if he was a poet. And there's a lot of white space in those books. Our book is very dense with jokes. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that if you can come up with a really sort of funny title – Mm-hmm. that you could sell a book. If you have the right connections. Yeah, I guess. I think there's a whole cottage industry of just kind of scamming publishers into these short-term brief ideas. I guess it sounds great in the pitch room, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. I guess so, but you actually put some some work into Too this. Too much work. <laughs> Too much work because then you had to – I mean the, the website spent, I think you said five years? Yeah, about five years. So you put an extra 35 years of work <laughs> and history yeah. to, to sort of create it. We had to learn a lot about history so that we could comment on different historical events. Also, one thing in your intro, I have a co-founder at Outvoice, too. His name is Issa. Okay. And he actually comes from the hardcore scene just like me. He played in a band called Good Clean Fun, and he's the tech side of things. So I don't have any tech skills myself. But, yeah, he's my co-founder. Okay. Well, yeah. cool. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned him. Let's talk a little bit about The Hard Times. Let's do it. Okay. So The Hard Times was something where I looked at The New York Times – and then I saw Vice, right? So you have a legacy organization, and then you have, like, the younger, edgier version of it, right? Then I looked at The Onion, and I saw that there really was no younger, edgier version of it. So my idea was, what if I started Vice Onion? That was my original notion. <laughs> uh, I came from the punk scene. I had a punk zine, like a, a print pamphlet thing that I was handing out at shows. Then I went to journalism school, and I learned some news writing skills. I went to SF State. And I realized maybe I can combine my punk zine, which was a comedy zine, with my news writing skills, and I can make punk comedy news articles and put them in my zine. Uh So it was just supposed to be a little section of my zine. But then I met Bill Conway, and I told him about the idea, and he really believed in it. I had run it by some other people who didn't believe in it so much, but he just really thought it was a good idea, and him and I together worked in private for about three months preparing the website. We had a huge marketing and production budget of $800. And after three months, we launched our website. And it was pretty instantly a hit. Our first month, there was a million people on the website. And it just kept growing from there. People were hungry for something like that? Yeah, apparently we had a good instinct. There was a little hole in the media landscape. 
of satire where so it's like you know the onion has satire but their every man has like a wife a house a job uh kids he's got to mow his lawn our every man has a band a shitty roommate depression you know what i mean it's a totally different perspective we're finding that we started writing just about diy basement shows and jokes that might occur in that environment and now our website is a little bit more like it's people who go to DIY basement shows making jokes about culture at large. And we, we found that our audience continues to grow and accept our broadening of our topics. So so there's a lot of snark in the hardcore scene, you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, we're kind of the biggest element of it, I would say. <laughs> you're um, fostering it. There's always been kind of two veins in punk and hardcore. There was the um, super serious political vein. And then there was the troublemaking comedy vein. Right. So you have like dead Kennedys with the super political stuff, although they did have plenty of humor in their politics as well. And then you have troublemakers like fear um, who are more out to fight the crowd and start some trouble. So there's like a little bit of like you can either be like there's a politics side or like an escapist side. And I think um, hard times is definitely in that escapist camp where it's like creating a little bit of fun and levity through uh satire and taking all the ideologies of punk and the self-serious people flipping them upside down with satirical tools and seeing if they hold up that much to jokes and sometimes they don't sometimes they fall right apart and that's part of the fun too yeah i I would imagine something you know somebody who's doing a a show in a basement very serious trying to change the world with their lyrics is probably a ripe target for satire right exactly it's interesting though because i used to be one of those people (laughs) right so i've toured the country a couple times the last time i was in dc i was playing a basement show right actually you know what that was it was, you know, the same element of a basement show, but I think it was above a restaurant. But little <laughs> DIY shows, you know, 20 or 30 people in the hardcore scene. And so when I was a journalist, I actually had an interview. It was like a press call, and Carrie Brownstein from Portlandia was on it. Yeah. And a journalist asked her a Sleater question. Kini. Yeah. A journalist asked her a question, something like, you know, do people ever get mad that you're making fun of uh, Portland and all this sort of stuff? How do you get away with it? And she said, well, you know, this is who we are. And we're making fun of ourselves here. And so that's a key element of the hard times is that a lot of the jokes are we're literally writing about ourselves. And I think that's why the punk community has, in large part, accepted us. Is because okay. they can tell that we're one of them. Okay. You, know? you, you put your arm around and say, brother, I've been there. Yeah. I yeah. need to – yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from. I've, I've shed those tears. Yeah. I've, I've thrown those punches. So so tell me a little bit about your, your music background. Sure. Growing up in the suburbs, I just wanted to be like my older brother, and he was into punk, and he showed me uh, Minor Threat and Black Flag and The Ramones, and uh, I just fell in love. It was actually the first it was the first style of music I really connected to in elementary school, so it's been my whole <laughs> life, which is kind of bizarre. Um, You're the kid in, in, in second grade with a mohawk. I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the first time I got a mohawk was probably third or fourth grade, and it was like for crazy hair day at my school, <laughs> but then I kept it, so I kind of like tricked my parents a little bit. Um, I ended up having a mohawk in middle school that was extremely tall to the point where I could hardly sit in my parents' car without tilting my head. There's a lot of comedy in punk. You know, it's like my parents are picking me up from school or whatever, and I have to, like, tilt my head to get into the car. But, yeah, I I just wanted to be like my older brother and hang out with him. So we started punk bands, and I think I went on my first tour when I was 16 or something. Mm -hmm. And we drove down to Arizona to play with Raw Power. I remember the venue had a dirt floor. And I'm still friends with some of the people I made that night. And, yeah, I kept going on tours all throughout college. So I played in one band 
in high school. Uh, the most notable band I played in was called Zero Progress. We did a couple U.S. tours. We played in Canada a bit. I don't play in any bands anymore. I miss it, though. I kind of wish I did. This tour is kind of reminding me of playing in a band because we're going on a book tour right now. But it's much cushier than the the tours we went on when we played in a punk band. You're, you're not in a van. No, like, we're like we're complaining about like, oh man, the water pressure in this hotel is no good, right? <laughs> but the places we stayed as a band, that was not. <laughs> well, but what are you do, what are you doing to keep it real? Try not to. Oh, you know, okay. Uh, <laughs> you just I, I mean, kept it real for too long. You're, you're embracing the the pampering. Yeah, the faker we can get. You know, we thought about putting out our book DIY. But I've never made a That's book before. That's a little too much. Yeah, I've, I've made records before. Right. So I have the experience of making a piece of media. But, you know, you need to find distributors and you need to do – and they need to know where to store them. And I didn't really know how many I should make. And as I was going through that process, talking to different people about who could print it, we got hit up by an editor, Kate Napolitano, and she actually worked at HMH. And she grew up in the punk scene. And she came to us and said, hey, have you guys ever thought about doing a book? And I said, we're doing one. She goes, well, maybe I can get you in over here. And so we actually didn't have a literary agent. We didn't go knocking on any doors. We just found someone who understood us and could communicate our value to that big bureaucracy of the publishing world. So it worked out really great. We didn't have to keep it real. We had you know, <laughs> had a publisher do it for us. And now it's in every Barnes & Noble. There we know? go. So Man. it's a lot easier. You know, I knew you guys before you sold out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, But, you know, you, you put the hours in, the 40 years that went into the book. I'm going to sort of dial this back a little bit because this is a journalism podcast. Sure. You, you did go to journalism school. And I kind of want to know where the dark arts of journalism sort of helped you launch the hard times. I mean, okay, yeah. You know, what was that transition from going out and interviewing people to suddenly, I want to, you know, write satire? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, actually, I started in comedy a little bit. I had a, this comedy punk scene, and I really wanted to, view, really wanted to interview Ian MacKay. And I reached out to him. I said, uh, can I please interview you? And he said, of course. And I said, all right, well, it's like a comedy thing, so it's going to be like some joke questions, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'm not going to do it if it's a joke. You have to be real. And so I said, all right, I'll actually interview you. And so we talked on the phone for like three hours. And I actually really enjoyed the experience. I thought, well, maybe I should actually start interviewing people. Then it came time to apply to schools and try to decide my major. And I thought, maybe journalism would be fun. So I actually got into journalism via interviewing people and just finding that to be a beneficial and fun thing to do. I went to SF State. I joined the school paper, started interning and freelancing for SF Weekly, started writing about music. And then, you know, I got a full-time job at SF Weekly as a music editor, and I would spend like a month on these cover stories. You know, I'm not that fast of a writer, but, you know, 4,000 words or whatever, right. a lot of reporting. And I would put them out, and they'd be on newsstands all across the city. And then I'd look at the analytics on our website, and I'd be like, oh, man, 1,000 people read this, right? And the only comment would be from my mom, and it would say, you're a master of words, Matthew. My boss would come over to me, and he would say, Matt, did your mom comment on your article? And then at the same time, I started running hard times, and I would put out a joke over there that would take me 30 minutes to write, and I would see 200,000 people read it, and I just thought, I got to go over here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the return, the return on effort is greater. Yeah, uh, I can't here. I can't just spend all my time writing stuff that no one's going to read. I hear you. I hear you and it's great that you're able to recognize that and find something that interested you in, in and it's sort of connected up with your interest in comedy and, and with hardcore. But so my co-founder, he's a stand-up comic, and so I think I 
brought in the news writing skills or like let's do an inverted pyramid that sort of stuff and then he brought in like a okay well let's structure the jokes this way and together we kind of created a format and i know that our site is very similar to the onion but if you are to look at an onion story and our story you'll notice that we have a very unique format that's not out there in the satire world just like the actual shape of our stories how long they are and what they look like and that was something that him and i came up with together and definitely had a lot to do with my journalism background our structure of our magazine also has a lot like how we run with our editors and our freelancers and stuff has a lot to do with skills i learned in journalism and people in the journalism world who i had met who i called up panicked being like hey man i guess i'm running a publication over here and there's a million people reading it i don't know what i'm doing can you help me out and they would give me advice so it's like a you know mix of all those journalism skills i had what a newsroom should look like What's an editorial process? Do you need a copy editor? You know what I mean? Yes. All the that answer sort of is it yeah. looks like this and yes. You yeah, need, exactly. You need a copy editor. So that's stuff that I think gave us an advantage because a lot of other comedy sites didn't have that. And I think when you satirize something, it's very important that you match tone. And a lot of other people would try to satirize things, but their stories wouldn't actually look like news stories. So it just didn't quite land the same way. Yeah. You know, they could craft a joke. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is really funny. And put it out there, but it mm-hmm. nece- doesn't necessarily jive with everything else you've got going right. on, the, on the website. I mean, that's one thing I noticed about going through your website is it seems very consistent. It seems like a real website that somebody has put out with great sincerity, but if, as you dig into it, you begin to see the humor in it. Yes. One of the things we did right off the bat, which is something that I learned from journalism too, was consistency. So we launched with, I think, six articles in December of 2014, but we had a stockpile for enough for one every day for two or three weeks. And then we kept, you know, there's never been a weekday that there wasn't a hard time story, right? And that's all about, you know, building consistency and a relationship with your readers. I think there's been some other satire projects from the music community, which have been hilarious, but they've been, you know, a Twitter feed. Or a Facebook page, something very minor. And we did something very like, it felt a little bit more full, right? It was like this total experience of here's an actual magazine and we're going to have various types of content and we're going to be consistent and you can come to our website and get new content and our website won't go down, all that sort of stuff, you know? So you kind of touch on this, but your audience, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as you were developing this, did you just have sort of a feel that there, you know, if we build it, they will come, that, that there's going to be a specific audience for this? There was a piece of me that did feel like people would enjoy this and that I could build the Vice Onion and sell it to Vice or Vice. The Onion. I was writing for Vice at the time. Then there was another piece of me that thought that the jokes were going to be too niche and that there wasn't going to be a real audience there. But that notion kind of got dispelled pretty quickly as I saw the numbers come in. You know, We just kept going viral, and the viral nature of it kept getting bigger and bigger. I was actually hanging out at our book event last night, and someone was telling me that the more niche your focus, the broader your appeal. And that that was the idea behind HGTV, was that if you just did one thing, that kind of anyone could watch it. And we have a pretty niche focus, but I think we have a very broad appeal. Especially the people who come to our you know book events so far, they're not, they're not all just people with mohawks. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's people from all over the spectrum. And when we branch out into different topics, they don't shun us either. So... I think people are looking for sort of authenticity in content. I mean, you do a podcast, I do a podcast as well. And I think that's part of the 
you know, the lesson you do when you're doing this is you suddenly realize, you know, the more in the weeds you get, the the more specific you get about whatever particular topic is that suddenly people are more interested in it than being broader. Broader, it's just, yeah, I can get that somewhere else. I right. wanna, you gave the Home and Gardens TV. I, mm-hmm. you know, I want to learn about how to, you know, put up new new windows. Mm-hmm. I, I want the expert telling me how to do that. That's, yeah. I can sit there and watch that because even though that's not central to my life. It's Mm -hmm. something I appreciate that authenticity. Yeah. You know that those are the right people putting it out there. And so I think our website had that and it was key to our success. I also think that there's people like to know the origin story of things. (laughs) Yes. And an origin story of a website coming from a punk scene in DIY basements and squats and of kids who are going around the country and touring starting a website and they still own the website. I think people like that, you know, because there's a lot of websites where you're like, who owns this thing? Is this a Russian disinformation? You know what I mean? Or what corporation Perhaps. owns this? Or no. how many people have they f- laid off in order to replace so-and-so, you know? But with our website, it's a little bit more transparent. I mean, do you have to follow the the current scene closely to sort of continue? Otherwise, I, I would imagine you'd almost be like mining the same cliche. It's interesting because we do try to do like up-to-date sort of commentary about things that are going on in the scene. But at the same time, we often like to take whatever is going on in the scene and then comment on the bigger issue at hand, you know? So let's say a specific band reunites. We often like to think about it and brainstorm and then then make a comment about reunions more than we like to about that specific band. And we think that that helps the jokes resonate to people who know what's going on, but also everyone else. And so I've had people who haven't been active in the scene for 30 years tell me that they absolutely love my website and that they see all the themes that they remember back then. And I also have people who are still on tour right now reading our website. Actually, my friend Aaron, he's on tour right now with Culture Abuse, and apparently they got to a house in Mississippi that let the band crash there, which is how most bands tour. That's like punk folklore. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's the way it works. If you do a DIY tour most of the time, at the end of the night, you just go, does anyone have a place we can crash? So these people let Culture Abuse and Aaron crash there. And on the coffee table already was a Hard Times book. And it only been out <laughs> for like three days. And that's when I was like, we did it. We're officially in the houses on the coffee table of the people who let bands crash at their spot. So... You've cracked the code. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've cracked the code. Well, let's talk about some of these other things you're working on. I mean, well, first of all, I, I mentioned you do have a podcast. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's been me and my co-founder at Hard Times, Bill. Bill and I actually met on a podcast. Oh. Um, he invited me on a podcast called Edgeland. It's about straight edge kids. I met him digitally through that. He invited me on. And then it wasn't for a couple more years until we started Hard Times together. Hard Times just has a really big audience, and I've been trying to figure out new ways to give them different types of content. And Bill and I use that as an excuse just to talk to musicians who we really admire. We have a lot of musicians who are very popular in our community who read our website and support our website, but we don't we didn't really have a way to interact with them. And now we can invite them on our podcast and hang out. And people seem to really like it. It's been a lot of fun for me personally. I'm always surprised to see that people listen to our podcast, but they do. And what's it called? <laughs> it's called the Hard Times Podcast. Okay. Yeah, try yeah. to work get, on that brand. Yeah, just trying to use that brand for everything it's worth, you know? And I like the your honesty admitting a scam that all journalists do. One of the reasons we get into this because we get access to things and yeah. we get to talk to people we would never have that probably for legal reasons we wouldn't necessarily be able to approach. Yeah. But but they actually will sit down and talk to us and we almost feel like we're their friends. It's incredible. These are people who wrote 
music that literally changed my life. Yeah. And then they come on my podcast and tell me that they've been reading the website. But without the podcast, I don't really have a way to reach out to them. Yeah. And even worse, without the podcast, sometimes they'll reach out to us with ideas for our website. And we have to turn them down because they're just dog shit. You know? So it's like <laughs> it's really hard to tell someone, hey, man, your music changed my life. But that headline is not going to cut it. No, no, we can't put it on the website. <laughs> no. And, and also, you know, by having a podcast, by having a website, it gives you a degree of credibility so that you're not just some screaming fanboy. You know what else is we really hid our identities from the website for the first year or two. No one really knew who was behind it. Our names weren't on it. And so we <laughs> hence, thought... We, we hence thought the Russian bots. We yeah. thought we were going to get beat up. <laughs> but eventually when we wanted to do the podcast and stuff, it's a little bit like of an unveiling. And I think a lot of our audience still doesn't know who's behind the whole thing. And that's part of the fun too, is it's, hey, these guys made hard times and they have a podcast and I can listen to them and hear what they're about. And that's actually, you know... That's really kind of useful because, you know, podcasting is really all about establishing that relationship in a different way than, than you would on a newspaper or a website. That that it's more about your personality and experience and the more people get to know about you, the warmer they feel sort of about you. They look for your byline. They, you know, I they do buy have, your book. I do have a weird thing, though, where they really like our brand, <laughs> they right? They hate you. They don't – you know what I mean? It's like they didn't – Come to the website because they thought, oh, I like oh, Matt's personality. It's one of those things. You know what I mean? They like the hard times. The hard times is their friend. You know oh, what okay. I mean? Because the hard times writes all these funny jokes. So the podcast is definitely a smaller audience of people who happen to think the hard times is cool, but then also happen to think that I'm bearable. <laughs> those two guys, they think they did everything. Yeah. But it's really this hard times, not realizing that you yeah. did do everything in, in hard times. Yeah, you know, people are strange. I think it's fair to say that. And you're also working on this other project, OutVoice, uh, that has to do with paying freelancers. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you've been a freelance journalist before? I have been, and I kind of am now, yes. Okay, yeah. So I was a freelance journalist for a bunch of different places. But one of the first times I ever got paid to write about music, I was so excited about it. And I got paid $12 to write a blog post. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I was just thinking... I'm technically a professional journalist now. You know what I mean? It was, I was just getting my start. It's a pretty low barrier. If someone wants to pay me to write about music, that was a big deal at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, my editor says, hey, invoice me at the end of the month. I invoice him at the end of the month, send an email, and then I wait 30 days. It doesn't come in. I say, hey, what's going on? I didn't get paid. He goes, oh, sorry. I must, must have slipped through the cracks. I'll send it through again at the end of this month. I go, okay, great. Another 30 days, then I guess two weeks later, the check shows up. You know, it's been like four months at this point since I wrote this $12 article back and forth over emails. <laughs> and I get the check in the mail, and it's a it's a $12 check, but I'm still excited about it. So I rush down to the store. I uh, put it into the ATM, and I go, great, I'm a professional journalist. I got paid to write about music. Maybe three or four days later, I got a notice from my bank that <sighs> someone had – the HR person had signed the check in a way where their signature, like, swooped through some numbers on the bottom. Uh-huh. And the check had bounced, and I had got a $35 fee because of it. So I ended up paying $20 to write this blog post. And it had been so much back and forth with my editor, who gives me all my work. I don't want to burn that connection. Right. That I just didn't tell anyone about it. I just said, you know what? That's just a horrible system. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. But I'm, I still need this byline. I still need to keep going. And so I've had a lot of experiences like that. Then I became an editor a full-time editor, music editor, SF Weekly, I would have to spend like a solid day out of my month processing invoices. And I'll never forget my editorial director came up to my desk one time and said, hey, we're doing a new thing with the invoicing system. From now on, can you use this? 
and he showed me this big wooden contraption with all these flaps on it. And it was like an old school alphabetizer. So I was supposed to print out the invoices, sign them, then alphabetize them, like put them in like the A flap, the B flap or whatever, then walk them down the hall to accounting. Accounting was supposed to double check something, send it off to a third party company who's going to cut a check. We had to pay that third party company per check. And then sometimes the checks got there, sometimes they didn't because people's addresses have changed. Just a nightmare, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, we're in the heart of San Francisco, like this tech epicenter. Like everything's going on here. And we're using this system that really feels like it was built right alongside Hearst Castle. You know what I mean? This is this old school thing. And I grew up when it was if you went and got a uh, pizza with your friends, you want to split the bill. It's a couple buttons on your phone. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And everything like that. Everything was like that for me. It was instant. It was easy, digital, fast. Yeah. Safe. Why? Why is this process so antiquated? Why is it so antiquated? And I really didn't get it, and I was frustrated because it was taking time out of my day, and I wouldn't get a blog post up that day or whatever. So I became a publisher eventually with Hard Times, and I wanted to change that system. I didn't want people to have their first piece of comedy writing be that negative experience of the bounced $12 check. And so I teamed up with Issa and we started brainstorming and we came up with what I feel like is a far, far superior system. And it's called Outvoice. And pretty much the the core idea is that the the publish button turns into a publish and pay button. And you choose freelancers from a drop-down menu. This is all inside your content management system. So if you're on WordPress, Drupal, whatever it is, and instead of hitting publish, you hit publish and pay. And so the same button that publishes the work notifies the writer that their article is live and immediately sends out digital payment. Then we have a central platform at outvoice.com that tracks everything for tax season and generates records for both the publisher and the freelancer. And uh, so it takes this process that used to take all these hours from the freelancer to the editor to the accounting and all this time for waiting for these checks to arrive and all this money because it costs money to mail these checks. Uh, and it gets rid of all that pain. And uh, I'm extremely proud of it. We have about 10 publishers on it so far. And I've been meeting with more publishers on this trip to talk about getting on board. And I think we've got a really exciting future ahead of us. I do think it can be the standard for freelance content creation. It's just a matter of I got to get the word out. I'm going to uh, uh, Summit for publishers in Philadelphia in the next couple of weeks to go talk to 70 publishers about it. And I'm in talks with some very big household names, but I've learned not to give them out because sometimes the deal doesn't go through. And then I say, oh, whoops. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. It's a really, really, I think it's the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, well, and strangely, it might have the largest impact. Yeah. Uh, from from a publishing standpoint. Yeah. Not, not to denigrate no. your your. You I know, think that your it, website. I think that it could and it should. Industry wide, it could have a huge impact because that's the, it's the most ridiculous thing. I mean, as long as I, you know, I've been freelancing off and on for years, and it's always been a problem. It's, and you know, some places are just they're always dragging their feet, but then others, you know, they're good at it, but they're just as good as they can be. And you know, with the way you know content management systems are, I mean, you've got to enter a lot of that information about a it's already there. a reporter into the system. So it should just be a couple of checks. It should be a you know something that you click. You know, the automation of it is that's my that's is, our idea. It's really interesting to think about because what I found out when I was a publisher was that there was no turnkey solution for this problem. And so when I went out and about trying to find a better solution, if I had found one. 
I wouldn't have made Outvoice, but I couldn't find one. All I found were like these invoicing platforms that were mostly built for like house painters or lawnmowers that you could kind of bend to work inside publishing, but I didn't find anything that publishers had built, you know what I mean, that was openly available. So my idea is that whether or not you're a blog that spends $500 a month on freelancers or a global magazine that spends 100000 or $500,000 a month on freelancers, you should have this turnkey solution ready to go and easy to install and onboard your people. It does a lot more than what I just described. It also... Have you ever been an editor before? Yeah. So yeah. the process of onboarding new freelancers is such a pain in the ass, going back and forth with W9s and like, here's our intellectual property agreement. Please sign this. No, you got to scan it, all this sort of stuff. Here's our style guide. With Outvoice, it's all you have to do is if you want a new, a new freelancer to join your team, all you do is you type in their email address onto an invite contributor tab on our central platform, and they get walked through the process and handed off any documents that they need, and they sign up. So our whole thing is just like a radical reduction of wasted time. So I think that it used to be that there weren't as many freelancers, so maybe this problem was just like manageable. But nowadays, there's so many. There's these like freelancer pools of 500 people spread all across the world writing for these magazines, and it, it's just got out of hand. Yeah. Um, so you need a tool designed uniquely for publishers and publishers' needs. So that's what I'm building. You know, from a freelancer's standpoint, you, I mean, you have no almost no control over it. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn in your story and you wait and you wait and you wait. You bug the editor. The editor's like, yeah, yeah, I got to get to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you didn't probably get into journalism to write checks. You probably mm-hmm. got into journalism because you wanted to edit stuff. You wanted to write mm-hmm. stuff. And so it's like maybe the least favorite part of the job. And if it's an onerous process that you have to go to to make it happen. You and know. sometimes it's not even really your – like it's out of your hands. But you, So yeah. the editor, it's out of their hands, but they're the ones being contacted. I, I sent it, it down the hall. You know, I walk it down the yeah, hall. That's like the famous phrase. And, yeah. you know, I'll check with accounting and see if they're where their process is. And, yeah. And so another thing that has been pretty incredible about Outvoice so far is the way that it's been a talent attraction tool for publishers. I've had publishers tell me like – and freelancers tell me they have started writing for publications because of Outvoice. And it's interesting to think about, but, you know, in the tech world, they have all these talent attraction stuff. Like, we'll make you free dinner. We'll pick you up. And although writers are talent, the industry itself is so beat up right now. Yeah. They don't see themselves as talent. If you give them this little bit, you know what I mean, as a publisher, the amount of talent that you can attract is pretty extraordinary. So imagine you have some great pitch. You have some scoop or some exclusive interview with someone. You got two publications of relative similarity as far as audience and prestige are concerned, and one's going to pay you without voice. You get it in your bank account in a couple of days. You don't even need to create an invoice, and the other one you're going to have to hassle someone for two months. It's easy. It sounds like a winning idea, and I hope that people are able to get into it. You know, it grows for you because I think it's something that just seems to make so much sense. One of the big things that we just started doing is um, the freelancers get paid right away, but the publishers pay on their regular schedule. Right. We're tweaking and fine-tuning and refining so that publishers, the value proposition is just perfect for them. And I think once we get that proposition just right and we get the word out, I do think that we can become the new standard so that less people have to have $12 checks get bounced. <laughs> so you've got you've got Outvoice here. You've got this new book coming out. And, uh-huh. of course, you've got Hard Times, the, the website. What's next? We're working on a web series. I just got in touch with a over-the-top streaming service that's getting kicked off that is uh, interested in funding that for us. We had 
talked a little bit to Netflix and a couple other places, but they didn't like our idea. <laughs> it's really hard to sell a TV show. I joked with my co-founder, Bill, it was probably about two years ago. We were like, all right, we have these two projects. I was like, Bill, you get the book done. I'll get the web series done. We're on the book tour, not the web series tour, right? So he beat me there. So now that the book is out, I have to show up with my web series. So I'm working on it, and I got some good news recently, and I think we're going to have that pretty soon. Well, that's great. Well, he, and he can work on the, the movie. I guess the movie's <laughs> next, right? <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of us doing a movie that's like clearly we, we ran out of financing like 10 days into the shoot. You know, it's just falling apart, bankrupt the whole company. Go the whole National Lampoon route. We start just selling the Hard Times name to anyone who's making a movie. Matt, this is great. The book's out there. Hard Times, uh, First 40 Years. Yeah, The Hard Times, The First 40 Years. You can find it at any Barnes & Nobles, a lot of indie bookstores. And if you go to thehardtimes.net backslash book, it'll kind of list off the different places you can buy it online. Okay. And there's a, there's a Hard, Hard Times website, which you talked about, and there's a Hard Times podcast. And if you're a publisher and you're looking how to pay your freelancers in a much more efficient way, check out Outvoice. Yeah. Uh, contact me anytime, and I'd be happy to talk to you and satisfy any of your concerns. Also, we've got a video game website. <laughs> it's called Hard Drive, and we have a satirical presidential candidate called Ace Watkins, okay. who's uh, blown up on Twitter. He's got 180,000 followers over there. He's his uh, at GamerPres2020. He's the first gamer running for president. So vote Ace. That's my big what, message. What's his, uh, what's his big uh, campaign promise? His platform? His platform. We just need, need to put RGB lights on the White House and uh, universal basic mechanical keyboards for gamers everywhere. <laughs> he, he just had his first rally in New York. People love Ace. Okay. Yeah, he's played by a YouTuber named uh, Phil Jameson who's very talented. He's got these perfect fake politician smiles and stuff. It's really good. There, we made a little documentary about him. It's on our Twitter page. This sounds fun. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great being here. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Lagrisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>